Would it surprise you to know that my guest, Anne Patchett, the author of seven novels, including The Patron Saint of Liars, Bel Canto, Run, State of Wonder, and Commonwealth, along with three nonfiction books and her first children's book, Lambslide, would it surprise you to know at all that she has essentially not watched TV in decades, does not own a smartphone, has never been on social media, and never intends to start being on social media, and has a bit of a love affair with solitude. Well, apparently, that is part of her secret sauce of what makes her her and allows her to do the stunning work that she does in the world. A graduate of Sarah Lawrence College and the legendary Iowa Writers Workshop, Anne has been the recipient of numerous different awards and fellowships, including England's Orange Prize, the Penn Faulkner Award, her books have been New York Times bestsellers, been translated into more than 30 languages, turned into movies. She has appeared in conversation with everyone from Colbert to Oprah to Martha Stewart and so many others. And this is super cool. In November of 2011, really frustrated at the loss of great bookstores in Nashville, she partnered with a friend to open an independent bookstore, Parnassus Books, in Nashville, Tennessee, where she lives and has become a bit of a spokesperson for independent booksellers, really championing books and bookstores. We dive into all of this in today's conversation, along with what it's like to run an indie bookstore in this current environment and so much more. Super excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's really interesting to have this conversation right now because my husband is a doctor and he is he's 16 years older than I am. He's 72. And so now these last two months, he's been home for the first time in his life. He's been home for two months and he's loved it. And it's been it's really been this beautiful time. And today is the day he went back to work. Mm. And just trying to figure out, you know, do I want to retire? 
Um, do I want to stop being a doctor? Do I want to stop having that identity? And I, I feel so lucky because, of course, as a writer, I get to do this, right. right, until I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And then hopefully I'll just go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that classic distinction, right, between a job, a career, and a vocation. Yeah. You know, if it's the thing that, that just calls you, and if you're fortunate to have found an outlet in a way where you have the, you know, the ability to just keep doing that for as long as you want to. What an amazing space to inhabit. Yeah, it's true. And I think for myself all the time about having a career in the arts and I just think, God, I'm glad I'm not an actress. I'm really glad I'm not a dancer. I'm glad I'm not a singer. Writing is, is a career that for the most part doesn't age out. You know, even if you don't do it as well, or you're not as popular, or you don't make money doing it, you can still do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I almost feel like it's a, a it's a career that you age in, you know, because you start out, and I feel like it's it's the type of career where the first I don't know if you could say the first half, the first quarter, the first third, if you really devote yourself, is largely about craft. Right. And then you get to a point where you've got enough command over the craft that then you start to step into this next level of expression. But it takes a long time to get there. And I am not aware of any hack that lets you sort of accelerate your path through what can be sometimes a reasonably brutal process of getting to a level of craft where you can start to sort of step into a different window of creation and expression. Well, yeah, but then the flip side of that is there are people who have one story, right? Mm. And maybe they can get three or four books out of that story. Maybe they can get one book out of that story, but they're, they're drawing on something very particular in themselves that, that doesn't open up and the writing finishes out early. I, I think that has happened over and over again. And one of the things that's interesting for me is Commonwealth was my autobiographical novel. And so, you know, I was, I was 50 when I wrote the book that I probably should have written when I was 25. And I was so aware of the fact that if I had written that book when I was 25, it would have really wrecked things for me because I would have felt like, oh, now I'm tapped out. You know, now I've told my best story. So I think it can go either way in writing. Yeah. And, and if you are the person where you have those two or three books, then I guess you hit the point where you're like, okay, am I just done now? Right. <laughs> you know, which is okay. But when you, when you look at this and say like, this is, there's something that has breathed me about this from the time you know, from the earliest days that I can remember, and I don't want to stop until I absolutely have to, which is, you know, it sounds like by all accounts is, is absolutely your wiring. I, I know this touched on your life so early. What was, it, it seems like reading was a huge part of, of you as a kid. Was was writing also? Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and I've puzzled about this a lot in my life. You know, why is it that when I met somebody when I was five years old and they said, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I would say, I'm going to be a writer. I mean, it was just baseline. And that is the most interesting thing about me. And perhaps the only interesting thing about me is that I've always known exactly what I wanted to do. I never wavered from it and I got to do it. And that puts me 
in such a tiny, tiny sliver of humanity. I knew it. I always knew it. I did it. And I didn't want anything else. You know, I never thought, and I'd like to live in Paris for a year. I'd like to travel the world. I'd like to have money, get married, have children. I've, it, nothing, nothing. I just wanted to be a writer. It's a, so what, I mean, you can't answer this question, but it is fast. What, what is it? What was it inside of you at five years yeah. old that just knew? I mean, it couldn't have been a un clear understanding of what the life of a writer was because you're five. And yet it was so clear to you. I have a theory. Okay. And, my, and my theory is I didn't know how to read. Uh. And my parents got divorced probably, I was four. My mother and sister and I left Los Angeles and moved to Tennessee the week before I turned six. I had already started first grade at five in Los Angeles. I, I didn't finish school. We just moved constantly. We stayed with a lot of people. It was, you know, 1969. Nobody went to school. I really didn't learn how to read until I was in the third grade. And so I think that somehow in my mind, I conflated the desire to learn how to read, to learn how physically to write, to mm. not always be passing and sneaking and, you know, squeaking by in one way or another, that I started to say, I want to write, I want to write, I want to write. And I became very clever. So even though I really couldn't read or write, I could tell a story, I could be amusing, I could seem smart. And I had it in my mind that that was the thing that was going to really save me. And it stuck by me, therefore I stuck by it. I mean, it's interesting that you could tell a story. Were you sort of walking around formulating stories in your head? Yeah. So which follows you then to later, because you're the creative process that you have described, um, which is so different from what a lot of other writers describe, is this idea of basically building the entire world and the characters and the story in your head for as long as humanly possible until it has, <laughs> has to burst out yeah. on, onto a page. Yeah. It sounds like that seed was planted really early. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually, I never made that correlation, but that is true because I really couldn't write. I I worked in my head and and then got to a point where I could get down whatever I could get down. And that became my way of working. And then later, you know, when I was in my 20s and I was a waitress and I just got into the habit of always having a story in my head, something that I was thinking about all the time as a way of keeping myself company, as a way of, of feeling that I that my life mattered. Uh, that that it had that it had depth. So I was a waitress, but I was also a waitress who was writing a novel in my head while I was rolling silverware. Mm. Yeah, I mean the it's almost like that was you're getting paid for the process of incubating the story. That eventually that's the story that eventually becomes the patron saint of liars, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean it's it's such an interesting process um, because it it also. You have to have a huge capacity to hold things and people and ideas and worlds and storylines and plots in your head to do that. I, I wonder if it's sort of the, the type of thing where it, it's a trainable skill to be able to do that. You know, one thing that I think about all the time is 
I'm, I'm constantly surprised that there's something that I can do that other people can't do. <laughs> so I think, well, you could hold a book in your head. I mean, it, in my mind, if we meet, if you and I meet, and we like each other, and, uh, you know, I, I call you up a week later and say, let's have lunch. And then, you know, later on, we go to the movies, whatever. We, we begin a friendship. And I, at some point, ask you about your childhood. And I ask you if you have siblings. And I ask you about your parents. And then I, I forget, did you have a sister? Did you tell me that already? You know, were you married before? Do you have kids? Do you, what are their names? How old are they? I'm going to forget. And then I'm going to ask you again. And then I'm going to remember. That's, that's how we exist as humans. We don't go home and take notes on the people that we meet, the people that we want to befriend or join our lives with in some way. We forget, we remember, we forget, we remember, we ask again, we look again. And that's exactly what writing a novel is like. I go and I look again. And, and when people say, why don't you write it down? And I always think, well, as soon as I write something down, I've committed it. And then it feels important. Whereas if I don't write it down, I forget and, and it falls away. If it falls away, then I need to go and look again. There's, I'm working on a couple of different things right now because this is such a weird time. And I'm writing children's books right now because I just can't imagine writing about the adult world. It would, it would be like writing a book the week after September 11th. You know, you don't know where the ground is right now. But I have an idea for a novel that I had before the world changed. And I think about it sometimes. And I think I, I don't want to, I don't want to write a grown up novel about the pandemic. This time will pass. You won't think it will, but it, it will just like September 11th doesn't play a central role in every novel that's been written since. But there are moments that I have insight because the world is informing me now and my mind is changing. And I'm glad that I didn't take any notes on this book because it means that my mind can change and everything is open. In the same way, I don't know if you're experiencing this now, but the friendships are changing. I find myself connecting to people that I haven't connected to in a long time and some of the people that I feel the very closest to, I've hardly been in touch with at all. It's like uh, it's like actors on a stage, uh, and and the people with the smallest parts are moving into leading roles. Has that been true for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I hadn't reflected on that before you brought it up, but yeah, it is. And I think also family, I've been in much more regular contact with family who are spread out across the country. And yeah, certain people who were certainly tangential players <laughs> have mm -hmm. become much more regular in conversation in my life and others have sort of faded into the background. I wonder what that's about. I wonder if it's a, just sort of a subconscious reordering of, of who you find a true sense of companionship with and or maybe just in this moment, you know, like the, what is the quality of relationships that you really need to be okay on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. I, I find right now the person that I am in enormous need of, who is in enormous need of me, is my childhood best friend from when I was seven. Mm. And 
I mean, it's like the house is on fire and, you know, we're just holding on to each other. And it's so interesting because, you know, we're friendly and we're close, but it's, we are so interdependent right now. And if you had given me a list of all the people in my life and said, all right, you know, who's moving into the number one spot? I, I would not have thought Tavia, but there she is. She is definitely the person that I need the most right now. Yeah, that's amazing. I wonder if it's also just about a shared, you know, like who who are the people where you have the deepest shared history with, where there's the unspoken language that just exists with such ease. Yeah. That you're looking for a sense of shared history and effortlessness. I, I think it's that, but I have also undergone a huge change in this time. How so? It, you know, we dare not speak of it, but... Uh, this horrible, horrible time in which the world is collapsing and people are dying and all of these terrible things are going on. And there is a way in which I have never been happier, which is, feels like such an awful thing to say, but I'm such an introvert and I have led the life of an extremely successful extrovert. I give talks, I fill symphony halls. I, um, I do so many things. I travel, I'm, I'm engaged. And to be able to go home and just be quiet again and not be thinking, I've got to get on a plane. I've got to meet this person. I've got to do this thing, unless it's virtual, unless it's with a recording device. I feel these chunks of myself falling away, armor, scaffolding, all of my protective mechanisms are gone and I feel so heart open and I feel like the person I was when I was a child. And, and I think also there's that sense of life doesn't last. That's, you know, that's the central contract. We, we're not getting out of this alive. (laughs) So So when we're put in a position of having to remember that every single minute, it brings forth either fear or an almost impossible joie de vivre, you know, that that life is so beautiful. This is is not forever. This is right now. It's the highest meditative state. There is no past. There is no future. There is this moment. There is this breath. That is what we are living. And I feel I am living that so completely every minute right now, the world of unbearable beauty. And so I think that my connection to Tavia is in part that because we were those children together and also she has held on to that part of herself better than anyone i've ever known she's she is still her beautiful child self and can kind of meet my beautiful child self again um, it's been lovely yeah that's amazing the um it i i do also send, have that same sense of um forcing being forced into actually not being forced into like i think we we all respond differently to this particular moment and steve jobs legendary stanford commencement speech where he references his diagnosis as being you know like the his awareness um daily awareness of his his impermanence um was the most powerful thing to make him come alive 
and agree. I mean, well, none of us would have asked for this moment. And there is, I'm in New York City, so I'm in the center of it all. You know, nobody that I know has gotten to this point without knowing people that are no longer here. And at the same time, you experience the loss and the grief and you feel what you need to feel. And also it, it is, if you can find the capacity to zoom the lens out just a bit, just enough to let you see, okay, so all of this will be gone as, as will I, and I'm you know, a similar age to you. So I'm like in the second half of things, how do I want to spend that time? You know, and, uh, I was here for nine 11 also, and there was a similar feeling in the months that followed that. So I agree. It's, I mean, it's interesting that, that what you brought up also about your fundamental wiring as an introvert and how this has sort of shut down so many of the things that had you not only exist outside of that social orientation, but also arm yourself mm -hmm. to be okay in that world. Um, so it's not just that you can be back in this state that's most natural to you, but all of the effort that went into putting up the shields and the scaffolding and the structure to make you okay, like that effort gets, gets let go too. So it's, I would imagine there's a certain lightness that comes with all of that. Absolutely. It gets funneled just back into your life, into your day. And, and I am having a sort of revelation as we're talking about all of this too, which is it makes sense on that level that I want to write for children right now, that, that the stories that I can tell, the stories that just make so much sense and make me want to get up and go to my computer in the morning are helping children make order out of their world because I feel so close to that part of myself right now. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's interesting when you think about that's the thing that you're drawn to writing and the person that you really have, have yearned to rekindle your friendship with is the person who you knew when you were seven. Yeah. It is, it, it's all full, full circle. Yeah. As we sit here, you, know, you are, you're at a point where you've had a stunning career. Why, thanks. And, and plenty to come. <laughs> Not had, as in it's over. <laughs> Closing that chapter. You never know. You're... Your exposure, I guess, to literature came at a really young age. I mean, you were reading things like, um, you know, like Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, when I think most people didn't, you know, were, were reading Archie comics. And it's been interesting to, to see, especially when I reflect on that story in particular, and I think about a lot of what you've written since then, a lot of the weirdness that we're in now, it's sort of like there's so much similarity between that one. It's all about dropping people who didn't know each other really in any meaningful way and you would never expect to see together into these worlds that they're not familiar with yeah. and seeing what happens, which as a country feels like is happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. I did a book club on the BBC a couple of days ago. Uh, they were reading Bel Canto mm. and, you know, I haven't read Bel Canto in 20 years. It came out in 2001. So the last time I read it was in 2000. And, you know, like, sure, you, you know, you want to ask all of England to read Bel Canto? I'm, I'm happy to show up for that. Um, as long as you order from Parnassus books. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we'll ship it to you. Um, we should talk about that. Uh, but while we were talking, I was thinking, damn, yeah, that is a good idea. This is the book you should be reading right now. Because I, I do write a lot about 
people in isolation. And it is the Magic Mountain and Lord of the Flies and the Poseidon Adventure and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, especially now, I, I think it's <laughs> prescient and relevant in a lot of different ways. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP 
for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's quince.com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. When, when you think about that lens with the kids books that you're writing now, does that flow into it at all? Or is it, is there something different that you feel you're channeling into those books? Uh, no, actually the thing that I'm writing about for children has to do with introverts and extroverts. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And, and it, that is the thing that's showing up. That pairing is showing up again and again and everything that I'm doing because I look in my life. And of course I have a ton of friends who are introverts and I have a few friends who are extroverts and the extroverts are suffering. Oh, hugely right now. Yeah. I mean, it's hell on earth for them. And the introverts are like, Hey, (laughs) we're good. How are you? So I just, just, from that sort of basic hard wiring that's so interesting to me and also how the introverts and the extroverts are living together mm, yeah susan kane is, is an old friend of mine you know who wrote the book quiet and oh, i love that book it was so important to me oh so me too because i we share a similar wiring i'm I'm introverted i'd love to be in a creative cave yeah, i'm fine in solitude for a long long, long time. Of time yeah and then i'll step out and be hyper public and then retreat back right. um you know because that's my happy place that book really explained me to myself. But also it was interesting because I think a lot of people bought that book to give to the extroverts in their lives to say, okay, so this is me, like here's, and I'm not broken and now you can understand. And so in moments like this where you're sharing, you've got a blend of introverts and extroverts forced, you know, into a small space together for weeks or months at a time. And they often don't pair well, especially when the introverts for the first time are the ones who aren't broken and the extroverts are feeling broken. I mean, what an upside down topsy-turvy universe to be living in. Yeah, I I really believe that we're going to rise up and lead the world. (laughs) I remember when Quiet came out, I got it on audio and my husband and I listened to it while we were driving to Mississippi. He's he's from Mississippi and his mom is there. And uh, he kept saying to me all these things that have really irritated me about you all these years, all these things that I thought you had made a choice to be this way. You know, it was some sort of an affectation, which that in itself was great because I had no idea that those things were irritating to him because he's so nice. He never said this to me. But he said, you know, it's like I'm getting you just as I'm listening to this book. So yeah, please, on behalf of introverts everywhere, tell her I said thank you. Yeah. yeah. When you think about sort of focusing your energies, I mean, one of the things that's taken up a lot of space for you since 2011, I guess, was you're out there writing books, public, then going back. And at some point, long time in Nashville, two bookstores left. Those two bookstores, and and I guess they weren't really even bookstores, or well, they were bookstores, they were. but they were there was, but they were they were mega bookstores. There was yeah. Borders, and then there was one that was bought what twelve, fifteen years right. earlier by a larger brand. But eventually, those go away. You're the happiest person in the world in solitude and being out there when you have to be and just writing, like you are a writer's writer. Somehow, you decide that that is the moment in time for you to become the owner of an independent bookstore. How does that come together? 
You know, it it's it's civic and it sort of brings it back to my father actually. I did not ever want to own a bookstore, which I think a lot of people do. That's like a, the fantasy it's like a restaurant. job. Yeah. Right, yeah, for a lot of people. And I was never that person. And in fact, I feel uncomfortable in bookstores because you know, my mind associates bookstores with being on book tour and with feeling kind of hunted and overwhelmed. But the bookstores went away there were all sorts of people forming committees about what they were going to do to, you know, get a bookstore. Nothing was happening. And I just thought, oh, damn, damn, it's going to be me, isn't it? Uh, I went to Catholic school for 12 years. And there's this whole thing of if you can formulate the sentence, whose responsibility is it to fix the public school system or clean up this trash or make the world a better place. You know, the answer is always, it is your responsibility. So whose responsibility is it to open a bookstore and get this problem solved? Ah, alas, it must be mine. And I was introduced to a woman named Karen Hayes and we, we met the last day of April and we opened the bookstore on November 15th. And the idea would, was that Karen would run the store and I would pay for it and we would be partners. And I have uh, wound up as Karen, as Karen often says, you know, you're, you're the loudest silent partner <laughs> that anyone's ever had. But I've become sort of not just the face of Parnassus books, but of independent bookstores and shopping local. And I became the representative for the book industry charitable foundation. And I, I just, it became my thing. And it's, wonderful. It's a little exhausting sometimes, but what I, there's so many things about it. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. I have really, really loved it. I've found enormous joy in it. And the best part is when people come up to me now in the grocery store, they're not coming up to talk to me about one of my books. They're coming to talk to me about what they're reading and about the bookstore and about, you know, some staff member who was fantastically helpful and who gave them exactly the book they wanted, uh, or they heard me recommending a book and they loved it and they're grateful. And I can really interact with people on that level. That brings me joy. Somebody walks up to me in the grocery store and says, I love the Dutch house. I'm like, okay, I thought, wow, thanks. Gotta, I gotta go get an orange now. But if somebody walks up to me and says, Oh my gosh, I read your recommendation of Valentine by Elizabeth Wetmore and the first novel. I wouldn't have picked it up. Boy, that book changed my life. That was so amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, I love that book. You know, and then I can enter into that moment and that relationship. So it gives me a public face that feels natural and not like I'm hiding. It is, it is me without scaffolding or protection. If I'm talking about the bookstore and books and other writers, when I went on book tour this last time, I, my entire talk was about books that I love and, and writers who I had met along the way who helped me figure things out about the Dutch house and uh, books that I want to sell, that I want to get behind. And I thought this is this is a real revelation because if I can go out in public and talk about other people's books instead of talking about my book, I feel really comfortable. Yeah, I mean, how much? It's interesting too because 
you know, to a certain extent, part of that, I also feel is it's your passion, it's your love, it's your deep knowledge of what's out there. And also part of it is that you're, I have to imagine, like you have reached a point in your own career where you don't necessarily have to go out there. And every time you mm -hmm. step into a bookstore, every time you step onto a stage, you, like the, the line in your mind doesn't have to be, I need to sell my book. Um, yes, but it's also complicated because yeah. one of the things that's really changed since I have the bookstore and, and my friends who are my peers are always saying to me, you're making us look bad. Stay home. Stop doing a 35-city book tour. You don't need to do this at this point in your life. And that's true. I don't. Except now I know that what keeps a bookstore going is somebody who can sell a mother load of books showing up and doing that for the night. You know, we had a, we had a, a truly disastrous Instagram live event with John Grisham a couple of days ago. You know, it's like nobody can get the technology straight. And it was a complete bust. And it was nobody's fault because the internet just kept cutting out. But you know, here's John Grisham. And he's saying, I want to do something to support independent bookstores. So I'm going to go around to these independent bookstores and do this Instagram live thing. He didn't have to do that. He understands that that's what's keeping us in business. That's what helps us make our payroll and pay our health insurance and all of that. So at this point in my life where, yeah, technically to sell a Patchett novel, I don't have to show up and do these big events every night. But I also now really know that that's what keeps bookstores going. Yeah, and there, There's something bigger that's behind what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. And the people, the really big people who come out and do these huge events, Glennon Doyle. Uh, sure. Yeah, she her last event that she did before she canceled her tour for Untamed, which is still sitting in the number one spot on the bestseller list, she came to Nashville. It was 1,600 people. It was bundled, so all those books were pre-sold. And she showed up. It was like the last night on earth that anybody did an event. That was so huge for us huge. I am so grateful to her for doing that. And, and not only that, you know, that's one end of the scale, but then the other end of the scale is, you know, the person who's got the first book out and maybe 10 people or 15 people show up for the event, but that's, you get heard and those people connect to the writer and they read the book and they recommend the book to their friends. And that's, how you build a career. And that's the other reason the bookstore has to be there. Yeah. I mean, it's a powerful, it's not the backup reason at this point. It's sort of the primary driver of doing this. And I think a lot of people, you know, it's funny, when, probably around the time that you opened Parnassus, you know, the world was saying, not only is a bookstore a hard thing to run, but bookstores aren't going to, indie bookstores, they're just not going to exist. Give it a year or two. And it's not just this, but you know, the beast is going to be gone. <laughs> right. Books and, are going to be gone. Right. You know, we're right. all going to get an e-reader and that's going to be that. Right. And, and it's been fascinating to see sort of the, the cultural phenomenon of, you know, indie bookstores, not only not dying, but 
from what I know, and I'm sure, yeah, like you have, you have the data in much more detail than I do. They may be the one part of, of book selling that's actually growing. Yeah. Um, well, at least until the last couple of months. Yeah. And even, even then, and I don't have any idea how it's shaken down for everybody. We're closed, obviously, but we're shipping books, right? You can go mm. on the internet and order books from us. Amazon has deprioritized books. So you can order a book with Amazon Prime. It may take three weeks to get there. You order a book from us, it's going to get there right away. But people have shown up for us in such an amazing way. And right now, our, we have 5,000 square feet. Our entire bookstore has been given over to shipping. So the, you know, there are like seven or eight of us working. I'm working. We're all just putting books in boxes as fast as we can and writing loving notes. You know, thank you so much. But if you want something to be there when this is over, you have to support it now. And that's a lot of the reason that, again, even now I'm going out and I'm banging that drum and writing op-eds and, you know, to anyone who will listen, if you love your bookstore, call them up and order a book, order a puzzle, order whatever it is because you need to keep them alive. Yeah, I wonder how that's going to translate out even into just local mom and pop businesses that have really been a part of the community mm -hmm. and whether people in the community will step up and say, you know, maybe I'm even paying more and maybe there's no convenience in getting it faster or better, but this just matters. I, I don't want this to go away and I will, I will do whatever I need to do yeah. to make sure that it actually stays. So it was interesting. I'm on the Upper West Side in New York City, and there's an indie bookstore here for a number of years that just went out a couple of months before, probably the beginning of this year. And as soon as they closed down, there were post-it notes that started covering the windows of the front of the bookstore. And you're like, what happened? We miss you. Don't go away. And it was interesting, the, um, the owners put up, ended up putting a thing in the window because what tends to happen in New York, and maybe it happens elsewhere, is if something like you have know, the beloved indie bookstore in a neighborhood goes out, the neighborhood gets pretty rageful towards the landlord, towards the you know, like mm -hmm. the owner of the space, and they had to put something up saying, "Listen, you know, they, they've they've worked with us. You know, we've we've done everything we can to try and make this work. They've been very gracious. You know, they you know, we were way behind in our mortgage because people were so fiercely protective, but." You know, I, I wonder, you know, what would have happened had they gone out to the community first? Um, and maybe they did, and I just wasn't aware of it. But had, you know, rather than, okay, the, the, the windows are papered over, and now you see all the post-it notes saying, oh, we wish this didn't happen. You know, how could you create the sense of, it's not just the owner's shop, but it's our shop beforehand mm -hmm. on a level where people would literally help financially make it okay if they knew that it was genuinely at risk of not being there anymore. It is a story that is all and only about rent. And when people say, you know, what are you doing differently that's making it work for you? I, I always say I have a great landlord and that's, he is the third partner in our business in a lot of ways. In New York, I have no idea how it can work because if you're selling a book on the Upper West Side, or you're, you're selling the same book in Natchez, Mississippi, 
your profit is exactly the same. You can't upcharge on a book. They set the price. And in fact, everybody wants you to discount because Amazon is discounting, uh, which is just impossible. There is no way that you can make that rent. And if people step forward and help, they're going to help for a couple of months, but they, they can't underwrite your rent for the rest of your life. I mean, it, it it's almost inconceivable that you can make a, a little indie bookstore work when rent is that high. Now, the interesting question is what's going to happen on the Isle of Manhattan after this pandemic? Because so there's so much retail space in New York that is empty right now anyway, and it's going to double, triple, whatever. So will there be this wake-up call that says we have to reprioritize? I mean, for God's sakes, if Barney's can't pay their rent, then how is a little bookstore going to pay their rent? Because the upcharge on a Dolce & Gabbana dress is a lot more than it is on a novel. Yeah, it, it, it is amazing. And we were, my wife and I have been walking around, we were noticing the same thing even before everything completely shuttered here in the city. Almost half of every block in our neighborhood, the retail space was out. Yeah, because people just couldn't afford the rent anymore, which you don't think about in New York, but it's, and it, I wonder if, you know, the shakeout from this is going to be a forced reduction in rents, which maybe somehow there's a, the negotiated benefit is that maybe some of the more community driven, smaller owned places end up having the ability to step back in yeah, um, and play more of a prominent role, which would be interesting because you know bit by bit we all wind up living in the exact same strip mall uh you know it's it's william sonoma it's the gap it's you know whatever the same store over and over and over again and it's an interesting phenomenon in nashville which has had such a boom in the last five seven eight years uh, and people want to move here because it's got that quirky independent feel. They've got the little local stores, local restaurants, but then everybody comes in, the market prices have driven up, and suddenly those little businesses, which are the flavor of the city, get driven out. You know, at what point does somebody say, this is what makes our city attractive? Why live in New York if you're just in a strip mall that's like every place else in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's the flavor of the city. It's, it, it, it is that stuff that makes it unique. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. 
add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. As you sit here and the store's closed, but you're shipping really nicely, when you, who knows when we emerge from this, who knows when things open again, are you spinning at all on what things might look like when we do and how, like, any ideas on how you would want them to be different? No, because what this time really has done for me has has finally made me a good Buddhist. Mm, and I <laughs> do really feel like I'm living in this moment. And I can think forever about how it's going to look in six months or a year, or two years. And the only thing that I know for certain is that I'm going to be wrong. I know that we will reopen. Um, I know that a huge part of our income comes from events. I know that we are not going to be having 1600 people showing up for Glennon Doyle, you know, that, that is way, way off in the future. So what you do is you just, you know, work really hard, try to be innovative. I've, I've been making videos for the bookstore in which I put on ball gowns because I own ball gowns and, you know, I, you get the jewelry and the shoes and the makeup and the hair. And I put on a ball gown and I hold up a book and I'm like the night watchman guys, Louise Erdrich, this is my favorite book. You know, anything I can do to make people excited about books, to make people think, Oh, this is clever. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to just show up and see what she's wearing. If nothing else, I feel like what it's doing is bringing out a level of innovation that, We'll we'll do pretty much anything. Mother's Day boxes, Father's Day boxes, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You name it, we'll make it. Right, yeah. No, it's true. Which is, I mean, it's pretty cool. And at the same time, you know, I'm familiar with your feelings about technology and social media. You are one of the people who's largely a ghost in that space. No, I'm never, I've never even looked at it. It's so funny. It's like I've made all these videos and I've never seen them. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, okay, so how do you go from intentionally not not existing in that space not interacting in that space not putting things into the space or taking anything out of the space to saying this is kind of the only space that i have right now what do i do with that how do i get comfortable with it what makes sense to me and how do i also at the same time while while i must step into this space to keep this thing that i love dearly alive how do i create new barriers and boundaries to under like to still be okay (laughs) not a problem because it goes back to the whole thing of people coming up to me in the grocery store you know i am not going on as ann patchett a novelist i am i I, that doesn't exist i mean there 
I have never once looked at Facebook. I've never seen Instagram. I've never done any of that. The bookstore has it. So I show up for the bookstore and I do these things. And again, I don't see them, nor do I see the comments. And, and that feels like a really comfortable way of doing it. You know, I, I don't, I don't feel like, oh, I'm, I'm selling out on my values because I still don't really understand what social media is about. Was the decision for you originally to just not engage in, in those channels in that way about not wanting to open the conversation, not wanting to see what people are saying about you or your no, work? No, no, no. It was entirely different. It, no, it was like, um, you know, when everybody started doing crack in the 90s, I just thought, wow, that's probably not a good idea. But I could really see that if you started it, you know, it would be delicious and then it would be really hard to stop. I never tried it, right? I just never walked through the door. So it wasn't a decision. I don't carry a cell phone. Uh, I have a little flip phone that I use when I travel, but otherwise it's in a sock drawer. I've never texted. You know, like no one has the number. I don't want to knock seven new doors in my house. I don't want to give you seven new ways to get a hold of me. I write novels. Every single thing you need from me, everything that I would ever have to give you that was worth anything is in the Dutch house. Uh, so if you're interested in me, in what I'm thinking and what I'm doing, that's the very best of myself. I don't need to interact with the world any more than that. Yeah. And, and at the same time, the fact that you don't gives you a volume of creative bandwidth that yes. would have been taken up yeah. engaging in all these different channels. And when you yeah. just say no it's all of a sudden, you know, like, I don't know how much RAM gets freed up in the creative brain to just do the work. I, I, I love, I'm actually really excited when I find somebody who I want to talk to and, and I can't find any profiles anywhere about them because A, it makes me really curious about that choice because it, it becomes really clear that it's intentional. And then I'm really curious about what they're doing with that time, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and are they actually using it to go deep, to, to, create output that is not just good, that is not just great, but is stunning in its potential. And I feel like when you do that, it gives you just the capacity, the bandwidth to go to a place creatively that a lot of other people probably just don't have access to because 25% of their, you know, like cognitive bandwidth and their concern is wrapped up in, you know, like the engaging um, in all these, like you said, the seven different doors, you know, all day, yeah. every day. Like I don't watch television, which I haven't done. I haven't watched television since my early twenties, probably. Uh, and I don't mean I watch a little, I mean, never, never. So I never saw the Sopranos. I never saw Breaking Bad. People are always saying, oh, this, it's the golden age of television. It's so amazing. I'm sure it is, but who the hell has time to watch these things that go on for hours and hours and hours? Like I, I can't, I can't figure out where everyone else is getting the time. And plus it would cut into your opera time. <laughs> <laughs> Even that, you know, the Met is putting up operas every single right, night and people are saying, are you watching the Met live stream? I was like, I, no, I'm reading all these books. I'd love to. I'd love to plunk down four hours in the evening and watch the Met live stream, but I'm not even getting close to it. I, I, I love that that's your orientation. And 
I keep wanting to challenge myself to em embrace it for a window of time because I'm really happy when I'm just in my own space, not interacting. And, uh, and I, and I, I know I actually have, you know, I am somebody who sort of interacts in different spaces and I have a little thing that I get on my phone every Sunday that tells me how much time I've been interacting in all these spaces. <laughs> and I, and I start, I've been thinking to myself lately, I'm, I'm, I'm actually about to start into uh, a new book myself and I'm like, Okay, so what if I literally just shut this down for a certain window of time? I don't have to make a lifetime commitment now, but what if I just said not now? Like for like now until X date, my job is to just go into my creative and create. And how would that change the quality of my life, the quality of my experiences, the quality of what I was able to actually make? So I, I think it's a, an experiment I'm about to run on myself. But remember, I mean, don't give me credit. I, I get yeah. no, but I get no credit for this because the difference is, I never tried crack. You are talking about getting off of crack for three or four months, and those two things have nothing in common, right? Like I don't know what I'm missing. I never looked. I never opened the door. So. It, it, it's, there's no nobility in it. I just, I just didn't ever pick it up. Mm, yeah. It's a difference for sure. Although I have never had a relationship where it's something that brings me joy for me, it's always been more of an obligation. So it'll be interesting running that experiment. We've been bouncing around back and forth in time a lot in our conversation, even reflecting on now and what we think the future will hold in the past, which is interesting to me too, because so my, I, one of the things that fascinates me about what you've done and pretty much all of your writing is you play with time in really interesting ways. You know, from the earliest book from Belcanto, where you're like, oh, well, this is something that should take 24 hours. Like, no. <laughs> to then your last couple of books, you know, and the, and the Dutch House, where you're talking about, let's tell a story over a period of decades or generations. Um, is, is that a, I mean, are, do you have fascination with time and how people interact with worlds and themselves over really extended windows of time? I have a fascination with time. Uh, and every writer I know has a fascination with time. It's just so central to everything. So time was getting more compressed in my books. Run takes place over 24 hours. State of Wonder takes place over three weeks. And I finally thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm really crunching it here. I need to stretch out. So I made a very conscious decision in Commonwealth to write a book that takes place over four decades. I liked the time. I take that forward into the Dutch house, but I don't do it in a linear way for two reasons. Time doesn't seem to exist in a very linear way. Now, again, it's going back to Tavia and the friendship of my childhood and how when I'm with her, the past and who I was and who she was so incredibly present. I Yesterday, her dad died two weeks ago, and she gave me this portrait of herself that he had hanging up in his house the whole time I've known them since I was seven. And now I have this this photograph of my little friend, you know, at six, as who she was, as who she is. Those two things are so present, who she is at our age, who she is then, they both exist. And so that's 
kind of how I move back and forth in time in a novel. It's the same way I do it in my life. Mm. Which actually feels like a nice place for us to come full circle as we spend a nice uh, bit of time together already today. And we're sitting in this really interesting, weird time where I think you and you're experiencing it very differently than a lot of people also in this container of the Good Life Project, is, you know, which now extends from New York to Nashville. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? This right now, right this, right this moment with you. It actually makes me want to cry. I mean, it's, it's so, it's so true to live a good life is to have your eyes open and see who's in front of you and feel the enormous good fortune of this second, no matter what we are alive. And I'm grateful and grateful to you really for taking this time. It's been such a pleasure. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. Type.com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.